The poet Dante was once walking along up the mountain of purgatory, and he heard a voice singing a hymn. Now, purgatory is the section of the world of the afterlife where they sent the souls of people who were not bad enough to be punished eternally. That's the inferno, hell, but also not good enough to go to paradise, yet. So they had a chance to expiate their sins, to make progress, to be purged in purgatory. And it was sort of mountain-shaped. Dante recounts all this, by the way, in his poem, his famous poem, The Divine Comedy. So he's making his way through purgatory, and he's meeting many souls along the way. And as he's walking in the gloom, he hears a hymn, somebody singing. And they were singing in praise of great souls who in their lives had rejected covetousness, people who had embraced poverty as part of their quest for virtue. And Dante soon met the man who was singing. It was Hugh Capet, founder of the great dynasty of medieval kings of France, the Capetians. And he was expiating his worldly sins, of course. And in this hymn that he sang, the king praised the Virgin Mary, who was born and lived in poverty all her life, even though she gave birth to Jesus, the best man. And the king praised St. Nicholas, defender and patron of the poor. That's the Christmas saint, of course. And he also praised a certain famous Roman who we met in our last episode. It was the noble Fabricius who met King Pyrrhus on that diplomatic mission that the Romans sent to recover their prisoners. Oh, good Fabricius, King Hugh sang, you twice refused great wealth that would have stained your honor and chose to live in poverty free of vice. There's something to consider in that, isn't there? Fabricius wasn't remembered by this Christian poet later for being a brilliant general or a towering statesman or a vanquisher of his foes, but for being able to live gracefully without wealth. And yet... Would he have been remembered at all? Would he have been an example if he weren't those other things too? I'm Alex Petkus and you are listening to The Cost of Glory. Welcome to part three of three of the life of Pyrrhus, King of Epirus. When we last left Pyrrhus, he was getting ready to leave Fabricius and the Romans behind in Italy. He was going to take advantage of an opportunity in the nearby island of Sicily. Now, in his own eyes, Pyrrhus wasn't abandoning his allies in Italy at all. They'd beaten back the Romans, humbled them, and he'd be back soon to help the Tarentines finish them off. You could argue that in going to Sicily, Pyrrhus was actually carrying on the struggle with the Romans. They had made a treaty with the Carthaginians, a war alliance against Pyrrhus. And this is some time, by the way, before the Romans and Carthaginians had their famous falling out in the three great so-called Punic Wars. We'll hear more about those in other biographies, like the life of Marcellus and Fabius Maximus. So now, Pyrrhus had to make the crossing into Sicily, and the straits were being guarded heavily. So he decided once again to dare the open sea, veering further south. But this time, there was no storm, and he landed at Taormina, it was called Tauromenium back then, on the east coast of Sicily, and the Greeks welcomed him there. From Taormina, Pyrrhus headed south to Catania, and the city paraded him and celebrated him there as a liberator of the Greeks. And then he made his way further south toward Syracuse, picking up allies along the way. Now, the island of Sicily resembles a triangle pointing west. I'll just let you take a moment to picture that. Syracuse is on the coast, close to the southeast corner. And to Pyrrhus's surprise, when he gets near the vicinity of Syracuse, the Carthaginian siegers and the fleet that are blockading the harbor, they all melt away in retreat. It's strange. It all seems so easy. And the relieved citizens welcome him to Syracuse with great fanfare. He has no trouble reconciling the two factions of Syracuse that had invited him as a mediator. And envoys soon arrive from many Greek cities, including Leontini, which was once the birthplace long ago of the sophist Gorgias. And these cities offer their support, their resources, soldiers, horses. And all of this is to use for his coming fight with the Carthaginians. The Syracusans feel entitled to speak for the whole island, and so they proclaim Pyrrhus king and commander of all Sicily. 
and they help him mint stout gold coins with an image of the goddess Athena in a battle helmet on one side, and then a wing to victory on the other. And the coins read, Coin of King Pyrrhus. These people seem to know exactly what he wanted to hear. Well, fine. But there was no time to waste being feted in lavish Syracuse. So Pyrrhus gathered his forces and set off west, headed for the Carthaginian territories. Carthage is in modern-day Tunis, so it's closer to the western side of the island. So that's the side that their strongholds are on. Pyrrhus first made for Agrigento on the south coast of Sicily. Before he could get there, though, he got word that the people of the city had thrown out the Carthaginian garrison already, together with their Greek collaborators. And so, without a fight, Pyrrhus took Agrigento, that is, Acragas, once home of the philosopher Empedocles. And Pyrrhus didn't actually face any serious resistance until he got to the far west corner of the island. The Carthaginians had holed up there in a little hilltop stronghold called Eryx, overlooking Trapani. And today there's a scary castle there. It was built by the Normans after Robert Guiscard and company took the place from the Saracens. But it was fortified in antiquity too. It was nearly impregnable, built on a natural plateau. Now, Pyrrhus didn't have the time or resources for a protracted siege, but he heard that the city's patron god was Hercules. So he went to the city's temple of Hercules, and it was very common back then for certain important city temples to be located on or near the borders of a city rather than in the center, rather than within the walls. So he goes to this temple of Hercules that's sacred to Eryx, and he makes a vow that he will institute great games in the gods' honor if Hercules will make Pyrrhus a warrior worthy of his lineage and resources. And then he goes back to the citadel of Eryx, but he's not going to surround it and wait the Carthaginians out. He dons his shining armor, commands his troops to send heavy volleys of missiles up at the walls, and then he personally storms the walls with his troops in the siege ladder charge. And Pyrrhus was actually the first to breach the walls. He got up to the top and he fought off Carthaginian defenders there all alone. He throws some of them off the wall, he slays others with his sword, and he fends them off until his comrades make it up as well. And he takes the city. And afterwards, he celebrates the Herculean games and makes good on his vow. Well, after this, most of the island surrendered to him. Some cities reluctantly, some gladly. But there was one more Carthaginian stronghold remaining in the west, on the west end of the island and nearby Lilibaeum. But the more immediate threat was from one of the Carthaginians' allies in Messina, back near the northeast corner of the Triangle of Sicily, at the Straits. Messina had long been a Greek city. It was called Messana back then. Recently, however, the city had been seized by a brutish group of ex-mercenaries from Italy. And these men murdered or enslaved all the inhabitants of Messina, and they were called the Mamertines. Mamertines, in one of the Italian dialects, meant sons of Mars, that is, sons of the war god. They earlier were aiding the Carthaginians in their blockade of the Straits of Messina, trying to stop Pyrrhus from crossing, and even now, as he was becoming master of the island, they kept up their policy of plundering the locals, ignoring Pyrrhus, daring him to challenge them. So he seized their tax collectors and executed them, and then he drove them entirely out of the countryside and bottled them up in a siege in a fortress in Messina. And, well... That just about did it. The island was his now, wasn't it? And now at this point, a Carthaginian assembly arrives at Pyrrhus's camp near Messina, and they offer to cede the entire island to the Greeks, but desire to keep their fortress at Lilibaeum in the far west, you know, for trading purposes. And that seemed reasonable to Pyrrhus, just a quick exchange of oaths, and he could add a nice triangle-shaped notch in his war belts and head back to take care of business in Italy. But the Sicilian Greeks objected. They said they were not going to settle for anything less than a total and permanent elimination of the Carthaginians from the island. The king was welcome to do as he pleased, but they would not be joining him in any more adventuring further afield as long as the Carthaginians had a toehold in Sicily. Carthaginians were not to be trusted under any circumstances. And as they pointed out, hadn't the king proven that he was capable of 
taking Carthaginian strongholds by storm or siege already? At Eric's? Pyrrhus was irritated. This is not the way that subjects are supposed to talk to kings. But perhaps they had a point. Greeks and Carthaginians had been fighting over this island for more than 200 years. He weighed the options, and then decided to tell the Carthaginians to leave the island entirely or be prepared to defend Lilibaeum with their lives. They chose to fight. But when Pyrrhus arrived at Lilibaeum, he found a very different kind of fort than the one that he had stormed at Eryx. Lilibaeum is modern-day Marsala, by the way, on the far west corner of Sicily again. And Lilibaeum had walls 10 meters high and 7 meters thick. Its fortifications were one of the marvels of ancient engineering. And unlike inland hilltop Eryx, Lilibaeum was surrounded on three sides by the sea, and so it could be supplied by ships from the sea. Not just food, the Carthaginians could keep stocking it with arrows, bolts, sling stones. They could easily ship in massive anti-siege artillery machines, catapults, crossbows, and so on. And Lilibaeum had a large ditch in front of its landward wall, which made the attackers exposed to missiles for much longer if they tried to make assaults. And by the time Pyrrhus arrived, the Carthaginians were ready for him. Pyrrhus had some ships, but not enough to wrest control of the seaways from the huge and experienced Carthaginian imperial fleet. The siege dragged on for two months, and Pyrrhus incurred heavy losses. He tried to undermine the walls, but they were built on solid rock. It was useless. And actually, within a generation, by the way, the Romans and the Carthaginians were engaged in a great war— the First Punic War, and the Romans sieged Lilibaeum for nine straight years without ever taking it. So Pyrrhus, out of options as he was, he turned to the Syracusans and the other Sicilians and requested they pitch in and pay to build a fleet and man it for him. That way they could take control of the seaways and hopefully take Lilibaeum. But they made excuses and dragged their feet, and they were generally unwilling to put up the funds or the efforts. Didn't the king have some uh, royal coffers somewhere or some allies he could call in? He was a king after all. And gosh, growing season is coming around. You know, never enough hands on the farm and all that. Pyrrhus was furious. They had blown their chance for an advantageous peace with Carthage. And now the Sicilians weren't willing to own the consequences. So he had to use some force. Forced conscriptions, forced levies, officers seizing treasures. It was very unpleasant. And the Sicilians started to resent him too. There were mutual recriminations, each accusing the other of bad faith. Several cities went back over to the Carthaginians and the Mamertines. At Syracuse, Pyrrhus eventually even discovered a plot against his life— orchestrated by the two rival men who had invited him in the first place, Sosistratus and Thoinon. Now they were colluding against him. He had one of them arrested and executed, but the other got away. And after it all, it had been nearly three years in Sicily, and this dream of ruling it, of asserting his son's ancestral claim to the throne of Agathocles and Syracuse, it was all slipping away before his eyes. And did he even want to rule these ungrateful merchants after all? And so, when emissaries came to him from Tarentum, he was very open to hearing an excuse to leave. And they gave him one, with some disturbing news. The Romans had taken advantage of Pyrrhus's absence and gone on a blitzkrieg. They had humbled the Samnites and the Lucanians in great wars. They had taken the great Greek cities of Croton and Locri. And who was the Roman general? Responsible for the most crushing defeats of Pyrrhus's allies, who had routed the Tarentines in battle now in the king's absence? It was his old friend, Fabricius. He had been awarded a triumph, a victory celebration in Rome. Pyrrhus made the crossing into Italy at the Straits of Messina, headed for Tarentum by land. He encountered heavy resistance in Calabria, in the toe of Italy. The Mamertines, those arrogant mercenary thugs, they had taken territory there and dug in. It was mountainous, hard fighting, slow going. 
Pierce wanted to get past them. He didn't have any more beef with these people. It was like the Mamertines were putting up resistance just to mess with him, just to punish him for spoiling their Sicilian racket. It was personal. And they were pretty tough. In one battle with the Mamertines, Pyrrhus was wounded on the forehead. His face got covered in a sheet of his own blood. His companions dragged him back from the front lines, stumbling. One huge Mamertine warrior, a giant of a man, raises up from the crush and shouts over the lines, Pyrrhus, are you still alive? If you haven't run away yet, why don't you come and fight me? And Pyrrhus was dizzy from blood loss and from the concussion to his head, but this snapped him back to life. He gets up, grabs his sword. His companions try to hold him back. No chance. The lines part as the king approaches. He yells in rage and charges. And before most people realize what's happening, Pyrrhus brings his sword straight down with all his might on the huge Mamertine warrior. And the sword enters right at the man's neck and cleaves him clean down the middle. And as the two halves fall to the ground, the enemy onlookers are stunned. The Epirots rally and charge, and they put the enemy to flight. That's the story, at least. And at any rate, it was the last resistance Pyrrhus ever faced from the Mamertines. Pyrrhus arrived back at Tarentum short on money, and not all that abundantly supplied with soldiers either, but he did still have an army. The Tarentines were relieved, but offered a much more muted reception this time. The Romans had taken nearby cities and a lot of territory, and Pyrrhus's presence would now hold them off. Still, they blamed him for letting things fall apart in Italy with his brash Sicilian exploits. Maybe Pyrrhus hadn't done a great job of explaining to them the strategic importance of deepening their ally base through a Sicilian campaign so that they could take the war more effectively to the Romans. But he had to admit, either way, that the expedition had failed. And after so much money spent and so many lives lost, they were now more or less back where they started. Worse off, even, since the Romans had chased most of the Samnites and Lucanians into their mountain hideaways. And yet, somehow, as it seemed to onlookers, all this didn't seem to bother Pyrrhus that much. He had no less resolution than before. He'd lost none of his lust for combat. There was no discernible hint that he regretted going to Sicily. He had faced many challenges there, and the politics of it all had been frustrating. But it was as though all this war was like play for him. So when word came that the Romans had recruited several new legions and deployed a massive army to the south of Italy, he gladly went out to meet them with his forces. And the armies met near Beneventum, modern Benevento, two days' journey inland from the Bay of Naples. This was Samnite country, and he did manage to raise some troops from that proud people. The Samnites never turned down an opportunity to kill some Romans. Pyrrhus heard he would not be fighting his friend Gaius Fabricius. That was a pity. He hadn't met a more worthy opponent since he left Greece. Instead, though, the Romans sent another commander of similarly humble lineage, a plebeian named Manius Curius Dentatus. And the most reliable ancient sources put the size of the battle at 40,000 strong on each side. Both adversaries wanted this to be the decisive blow. Manius was camped near Beneventum, waiting to be joined by the other consul who was leading up another army to join him against Pyrrhus. So once Pyrrhus got to the region, he wanted to strike fast before the armies could combine. So he took some of his troops, his best ones, and his toughest elephants on a daring night mission around the side of the armies through a wooded region. He wanted to launch a surprise attack on the Romans. But this might be one of those instances where Great events in history are decided by small miscalculations because his troops got into difficulty in the forest as they were on their way to the Roman camp. It took longer than expected and their torches ran out and they end up hiking all night, much of it in the dark and men get scattered and because they don't have any torches, it just takes longer. And so 
they arrive in the vicinity of the Roman camp in broad daylight, and they're exhausted, in disarray. Manny is curious, sallies out, and he scatters the men, cuts them to pieces. He chases them down the incline he was camped on, and the battle goes on in the plain as more of Pierce's forces arrive from the forest and from his main camp. Now, since they have the higher ground, the Romans are able to concentrate javelin fire at the elephants, and this drives several of the beasts into a panic, and they charge into Pyrrhus's troops and cause more chaos. And there are many stories about what happened on that day at the Battle of Beneventum in 275 BC, conflicting stories, and the actual result of the battle is debated among ancient sources. There were great losses on both sides, that's for sure. Plutarch and many of the Roman sources call it a victory for the Romans. But Polybius, the most reliable of the historians who report on it, who lived much closer to the events, says the result was indecisive. It's clear, though, that the Romans ended up claiming victory. Manius Curius went back to Rome and he celebrated a triumph, and he paraded captured elephants through the city, the first time most of the residents of Rome had seen anything like that. Pyrrhus claimed victory too, though. It made sense. After the Battle of Beneventum, the Romans left the area. They didn't charge in and claim another chunk of Tarentine land like you would expect victors to. But if this was a victory for him, it was another one of his signature Pyrrhic victories. The Romans had inflicted punishing loss, and by this time, he didn't have the supplies to carry on the war. So Pyrrhus decides to write to the other Macedonian kings back east to see if they might send him some troops. Kings were always doing each other favors, and he knew several of those kings would love to see Pyrrhus still preoccupied far away. But word soon got back to Tarentum from the eastern thrones. From Ptolemy in Egypt, this is actually the son and successor of old Ptolemy that Pyrrhus knew. No free resources to donate, best of luck my friend. From Antiochus in Asia, now holding his father Seleucus' throne. Difficult times, you know, wars on the Bactrian border and all that. Sorry, good luck Pyrrhus. From Antigonus, son of Pyrrhus' old brother-in-law, Demetrius. They called him Antigonus Gonatas. Antigonus was a big man now. If you had told Pyrrhus five years ago that Antigonus Gonatas would now be king of Macedonia, he would have laughed. But in the chaos of a huge Gallic invasion, Antigonus had played his cards very well and gotten very lucky. The Gauls had killed the former king, the Thunderbolt. That guy was a member of another dynasty. And then Antigonus, against all odds, had stormed the Gauls in a surprise attack and wiped them out. That was just a year or two ago now. He was about Pyrrhus's age. Pyrrhus, old friend, came the message. All capital and troops are currently committed. It sure is expensive trying to consolidate one's rule. Hope you can understand. Good luck. And so Pyrrhus was once again faced with a choice. He could dig in here at Tarentum, try to politic around the various cities and tribes, gradually build up a war chest through careful stewardship of tax revenues, like his old tutors might advise. But was that really his style? Had he ever been able to sit still and wait for acorns to turn into saplings, saplings into oaks? He had been away from home too long. There had been some abortive attempts to take his throne while he was away. Luckily, his son Ptolemy had done his job, put down those coups, but with a new fledgling king on the throne of Macedonia, Antigonus Gonatas, and Greece still reeling from the Gallic invasion, and with all of his connections and familiarity back in Greece, maybe he stood a better chance of raising an army by going home. There was always some opportunity to exploit for a man of his talents, some weakness to expose, some cause to champion, and where there was a fight, there were new followers to be gained. And so Pyrrhus once again left the Tarentines holding the bag, as it were. He told them he'd be back. He left a garrison in the city, of course, for all the obvious reasons. Cheer up, friends. This is the way we're going to eventually beat the Romans. The Tarentines nervously waved goodbye. And with that, he boarded the bulk of his army, horses, and war materiel, 
and his remaining elephants onto the Tarentine vessels that had taken him and sailed back across the Adriatic to Epirus. Pyrrhus arrived back in his homeland and found things reasonably well intact. His eldest son, Ptolemy, had grown into a warrior. This was the son from his first marriage, by the way, from the royal house of Greeks ruling Egypt. Young Ptolemy had made himself into a real asset. His father was proud. Pyrrhus put him in command of a division of his army. And now, back at his court in Ambracia, he considered the political and military situation in Greece. His new neighbor to the east in Macedonia, Antigonus, had already once denied him military assistance. Now that Pyrrhus was back in Epirus with his army, there wasn't so much of a need for peaceful diplomacy with neighbors anymore. And neither Antigonus nor any of the other kings were likely to ever pony up and lend him as many troops and resources as he really needed to carry on his war with Rome. If Pyrrhus wanted to grow his power base, he was just going to have to take what he needed, just like Demetrius had, and that meant taking from Antigonus. Now, Antigonus Gonatas was, as I mentioned earlier, the son of Demetrius, Pyrrhus's old mentor and adversary. On his mother's side, Antigonus was a nephew of Cassander, the man who had killed Pyrrhus's father and his aunt Olympias. So they know each other pretty well. But somehow, the two noble lineages that intermingled in Antigonus had maybe gotten their wires crossed, so to speak, and they had produced a very homely man. People compared Antigonus, in appearance, to the half-man, half-goat, satyr god, Pan. To his credit, though, Antigonus had a sense of humor, and he just owned it. He had coins minted with the image of the god Pan on one side, lumpy brow, goat horns and all, and the words, coin of King Antigonus, proudly scribed on the other. Pan was a rascal, chasing nymphs, playing his flute to console himself for his romantic failures. But Antigonus was also serious about honoring Pan, because Pan was also a serious enough god. He was a trickster, and Antigonus was too. Pan was also the god of chaos, the god of spooky sounds in the forest, the god of panic, that mysterious force named after him that grips an entire army sometimes in unfamiliar territory, addles their wits, makes them vulnerable. Pan had helped Antigonus win an upset victory against the Gauls in Thrace in a clever ambush that he staged. So it made sense to honor Pan. Pyrrhus was amused by all of this, but there was some urgency for him if he was going to raise an army to take back Italy. So without much hesitation... He marched into that rugged borderland of Macedonia, lands that he once controlled, that old Lysimachus had stolen from him long ago, and he simply took them back. 2,000 of the local Macedonian fighting men welcomed him in and joined up with his army. That was pretty easy. Now he wanted to move down into the rich, wide plains of the heartland of Macedonia, closer to the coast where some of its great cities were situated. Edessa, Pella, Aigai. Thessaloniki. But Antigonus wasn't going to give it up without a fight. He met Pyrrhus in a narrow valley to try to block his advance into the plains. It would be a test, this upcoming battle, as to whether Pyrrhus could still defeat Greek kings. And he passed it brilliantly. Pyrrhus ended up surprising Antigonus's army and he surrounded and captured most of it. At a key moment in the battle, Pyrrhus held his troops back from making a deadly advance on a cowering Macedonian phalanx, and he triumphantly raised his right hand in invitation, and they melted away from Antigonus to join Pyrrhus's side. Antigonus and a small, loyal entourage galloped away at a sprint. And it was perhaps not long after this battle that Antigonus was famously asked, who is the greatest general of our day? To which he replied, Pyrrhus, if he lives to be old. Well, after this battle, Pyrrhus seized most of Macedonia, including the ancient capital of Aigai, that was the ceremonial heart of the kingdom. Aigai was where the great kings of the Argead dynasty lay buried in giant tumuluses. It's modern-day Virgina. Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, had many of his royal family buried there with him, 
lay in state with great treasures of gold and exquisite paintings. So Pyrrhus had, it seemed, at last grabbed hold of this great prize that eluded him before, the throne of Alexander. He controlled the heartland, the royal cities, the royal altars and tombs. He was king of Macedonia. Aunt Olympias would have been proud. And he took most of Thessaly from Antigonus too, the region to the south. But the matter wasn't settled yet, because Antigonus still controlled some territories in the east of the kingdom along the coast. And now they were engaged in a propaganda war for the heart and soul of Macedonia. The question wasn't just who had the most territory or who controlled the symbolic places, but who was the rightful king of Macedonia. And an incident soon happened that seriously undermined Pyrrhus's authority. One of the most substantial portions of Pyrrhus's army now consisted of actually Gaulish mercenaries, and these were recruited from the failed Gallic invasion force that had recently been running amok in Greece. Say what you will about their manners, they were great fighters. So some of these Gauls, Pyrrhus had recruited into his own army on his own, and some of them he had taken from Antigonus in that recent battle. But while Pyrrhus was off tending some business elsewhere, a group of these Gauls at Aigai, remember the ancient royal city, they were accused of raiding some holy tombs of the kings of the Macedonians, the ancient tombs of the ancient kings. And Pyrrhus couldn't afford to punish these Gauls too severely. They made up a large portion of his army, and they were fickle. And Antigonus knew it, so he twisted the dagger. And soon his spies and agents had the whole kingdom talking about this incident, about the Gauls raiding the tombs of Macedonia. Pyrrhus the slack king, Pyrrhus the barbarophile, Pyrrhus the grave robber. This was so irritating, and it was so boring. It reminded him of that tiresome task he faced in Sicily when the locals had started turning against him, complaining about his harsh rule, his forced conscriptions, and on and on. But Pyrrhus was soon presented with a very interesting new opportunity. Maybe he didn't have to get tangled up in a propaganda war in Macedonia with this little goat king. Pyrrhus received a personal visit from Cleonymus, who was the senior member of the royal Agiad dynasty of Sparta. Cleonymus had been driven out of his home city a while back by supporters of his nephew, who was the king, Arius. But Cleonymus was an old man, and he was tired of living as an exile now. And his nephew, the king, was out of the country. He was off helping out some allies on the island of Crete. If Pyrrhus would help Cleonymus take the throne of Sparta for himself while the other king was away in Crete, well... Cleonymus would see to it that Sparta became Pyrrhus's loyal ally against Antigonus. Pyrrhus actually knew Cleonymus and his story pretty well, and perhaps he felt they were kind of kindred spirits. Pyrrhus was 45, Cleonymus much older. Cleonymus had in fact fought the Romans in the service of the Tarentines in a much smaller conflict 20 years before Pyrrhus ever left for Italy. Cleonymus had been fighting as a soldier of fortune through most of his life, in southern Italy, northern Italy, in Crete. He had even done some raiding in Demetrius's territory. Good man. He usually fought as a representative of his ungrateful nephew, the king of Sparta, and his often ungrateful city. But sometimes he fought as little more than a hired blade. Both men knew the thrill of adventuring and the pain of exile. Pyrrhus knew that Cleonymus was unpopular at Sparta. He was seen as harsh, tyrannical even. But Pyrrhus still felt moved to help this tired old man. Maybe he sensed something tragic about him, like a, a version of what he feared he might become one day. But more importantly, this was a major strategic opportunity. Because Antigonus was clinging to the eastern coast of Macedonia like a barnacle, it was going to be very difficult to dislodge him as things stood. Antigonus still controlled his father Demetrius's world-class navy. Many of the coastal cities he held 
or impregnable seaside fortresses like the one at Demetrius near modern Volos in southern Thessaly, which Antigonus's father had founded and named after himself. Pyrrhus had learned a very costly lesson at Lilibaeum in Sicily about sieging easily supplied harbor fortresses against a power that controls a sea. But Pyrrhus also knew Antigonus was vulnerable in the south. Antigonus had inherited from Demetrius a network of garrisons and collaborators in the various Greek cities, a system of control that ensured that he could get local conscripts and taxes and force his will in the area. It was quite unpopular, actually, with many of the local Greeks. They wanted to be independent again, like they were before the conquests of Alexander. So Pyrrhus agrees to help Cleonymus. But this wasn't going to just be the forcible installation of some pretender to the throne, a new puppet in Sparta for Pyrrhus. The story, at least, was going to be that this was a mission of liberation. They would liberate the Greeks, from the yoke of Antigonus. How's that for propaganda? If Pyrrhus was successful, he could use his new allies to easily build a fleet and take all of Greece from Antigonus for good. And with an advisor who knew the lay of the land with him, and with Sparta's main army gone in Crete, it looked like it ought to be an easy win. They set out. The plan was to keep the Sparta regime change plan a total secret until they were actually in the neighborhood of Sparta, and it was too late to do anything about it. Sparta didn't have a garrison or any of Antigonus's pawns. They'd think it had nothing to do with them, this whole liberation idea. And so Pyrrhus marched south, and he made quite an impression on the local Greek cities as he moved, leading his large army of Epirots, Macedonians, and Gallic mercenaries, infantry, cavalry, elephants. And so many of these cities soon send embassies. They're pledging their support. These are good signs. Now, Sparta is located in the southeast of the southern peninsula of Greece, called the Peloponnese. By the time Pyrrhus made it into the Peloponnese, he had gained as new allies many of the key powers in the region. The Athenians, the Achaeans, the city of Elis, Megalopolis... All of them were throwing out Antigonus' garrisons and his local oligarchical supporters, and they were approaching Pyrrhus. And the Spartans were caught completely off guard. Pyrrhus's army crossed into Spartan territory suddenly, without warning, and a panic spreads through the country, and the Spartans scramble to throw together whatever defenses they can. And when Pyrrhus and his Spartan exile advisor, Cleonymus, arrive in view of the city, evening is approaching. And the Spartan army was still reported to be off in Crete. Allies were nowhere to be seen. And Cleonymus advises storming the city now, while they're still surprised and without help. Keep the initiative. Storm it by torchlight. Don't wait till morning. Don't underestimate these people. This is Sparta, after all. And so Pierce thinks on this, but he's hesitant. After the incident with the tomb robbing, he really doesn't trust his Gallic troops to behave themselves. If they seized control of the city now, the chaotic mist of war combined with the cover of night could leave the door open to all kinds of horrors and opportunism, especially among these mercenaries of questionable discipline that he was using now. And Pyrrhus didn't want to be seen as a monster. He preferred to follow the model of his cousin, Alexander the Great, and spare the cities whenever possible, keep them intact, pardon their citizens for resistance, make them friends in the end. Besides, if he went down in history as the first man to brutally sack Sparta, the pride of southern Greece, the looting of temples and such, which was a real risk, Antigonus would never let anyone forget it. And then the Spartans would probably find a way to eventually kick out an even more hated Cleonymus as a treacherous, plundering tyrant. On top of all of that, there was the huge risk and uncertainty of trying to take a city by night, street by street, filled with hostile locals, no, Spartans, who knew every passageway and dead end, trying to communicate over a chaotic din by firelight. All kinds of things could go wrong. That would be very dangerous indeed. And there was still one king left in the city, 
Sparta had an unusual system that dated to distant antiquity of always having two kings. So one king was in Crete, but one was left in the city. So Pyrrhus decides to set up camp, wait till the morning. How much could change over the course of a single night anyway? An easy victory seemed assured for the next morning. The slaves of Cleonymus at his house inside Sparta were reportedly making preparations for a great feast to welcome Pyrrhus to the city after they took it the next day. But this brief delay turned out to be one of Pyrrhus's greatest strategic miscalculations. Because that night, the Spartan Supreme Council of 30 elders, their senate, the Gerousia, held an emergency meeting. They were about to promulgate an emergency resolution to send all of the women and children off to Crete where the army could defend them and then leave the city filled with only fighting men to defend it. But in the middle of the proceedings, Queen Archidamia, who was a senior member of one of the royal houses, mother of one of the current kings, bursts into the Senate house. She was holding a sword. She informed the council that she and the leading women had heard about the current resolution to send them off to Crete and wanted them to know that the women refused to comply. Shame on them, she said, for thinking that the Spartan women should continue to live after Sparta herself had perished. They would stay, and they would fight. And so the entire city got busy throwing up last-minute fortifications. The men started digging a huge trench between themselves and the enemy, and soon the women and maidens came out with close-girt tunics and started helping. They wheel up wagons on either side of this ditch to extend the fortification line. They bury the wagon wheels up to the axles so they'd be unmovable. And before it got too late, the women send all of the fighting men to their homes to rest. They needed all their strength for the contest the next day. And you know, Sparta was one of those rare cities in the ancient world where the women were expected to train in gymnastics and fitness just like the men. Maybe the legendary founder Lycurgus had had precisely this kind of black swan event in mind when he was formulating the Spartan education and training system and included women in it. And the women of Sparta continue digging the trench, heaping up and burying wagons for the whole night, right alongside the old men. And by the morning, the trench in front of the gate of the city was nine feet wide, six feet deep, 800 feet long, and it's flanked by rows of half-buried wagons on either side. So Sparta situated on a gently inclined slope, and it now had a set of formidable fortifications fanning out in a semi-circle sort of from the city gates. There's a trench in front, wagons on the sides, and they're placed at regular intervals, these wagons, so that they could break up and stagger any line of an enemy charge. They were big enough wagons to stop elephants. It had just gotten a lot harder to take the city. Pyrrhus nonetheless led his army forward and charged the trench. But they were charging uphill, and the earth around the ditch was soft and wet, and this made it difficult to make any progress with the Spartan spears thrusting back at them. They retreated after taking heavy losses. And then Pyrrhus's eldest son, Ptolemy, led a charge of elephants and Gallic infantry around the side of the ditch through the wagon line. But the charge was repulsed by a band of 300 elite Spartan city guards that sallied out to stop them. And so the Spartans fought with unbelievable courage that day, and they successfully held off Pyrrhus for the day. The next day, Pyrrhus drew up his forces again. And with even few defenders now, given the wounded and slain of the day before, the Spartans held strong. This time, the Spartan women actually dared to come out onto the battlefield and aided the fighting men at the fortifications. They brought arrows, javelins, and sling stones. They brought food and drink to weary defenders and hauled away the wounded, cared for them. I mean, think of the kind of psychological effect that that would have, that kind of all-out effort would have on the fighting men. The extra energy behind their spears and arrows, knowing that their women were literally watching them risking their lives alongside them. How could you ever be more motivated to give your life fighting for the freedom of your country? Pyrrhus led a cavalry charge. His horse was killed by a missile. He retreated in failure. Another unsuccessful day was drawing to a close. 
Still, after 48 hours of all-out effort, the Spartans were exhausted, and at this point they had taken heavy losses. They were on the last threads of hope. So Pyrrhus brought the siege attack to a halt to see if they'd be willing to come to an agreement. But then things turned again. As Plutarch remarks, Perhaps the divine goddess of fortune, which watched over Sparta, was satisfied by the proof of courage that she had taken from its people and thought they deserved some good luck. Because that night, the commander of Antigonus's powerful garrison at Corinth arrived with reinforcements for the Spartans, and under cover of darkness, he and his troops stole into the city. Sparta had not been allied with or subject to Antigonus, but in these dire circumstances, they gladly accepted his help. And in the morning, it was announced that the other king of Sparta, Arius, had returned with his ships from Crete. They'd made landfall at the Githion Harbor, 25 miles to the south. He'd be at the city with a thousand elite Spartan fighters and a thousand Cretan soldiers within a few hours. With the city now reinforced, Pyrrhus's moment to take Sparta easily had passed. He called off the direct attack. He was going to settle in for a long siege, spend the winter there, cut off supply lines, plunder the territory. It was unpleasant and a little bit shameful, but for the time being, he saw no reason not to follow through with his commitments. But fate, as Plutarch says, was not to be escaped. For one thing, Antigonus now clearly saw Pyrrhus' grand strategy for seizing full control of Greece and driving Antigonus out. So Antigonus decides to take the war to Pyrrhus in the Peloponnese. He's making his way south. At the same time, there was an opening for Pyrrhus in the political situation at the ancient city of Argos. Argos is in the north of the Peloponnese, a day or two's journey south of the Isthmus at Corinth. It was strategically important because of its location, but Argos also had a very strong, natural Acropolis fortress. The locals called it the Shield, the Aspis, and it also had a fine harbor at Nafplio. Argos had kept its independence up to this point, but now there was factional infighting in the city, and one faction was inviting Antigonus to come take control, while the other faction sent to invite Pyrrhus. And there was now a race between the two kings to see who could get there and take it first and seize the advantage in this war for the supremacy of Greece and Macedonia. And Plutarch sees here one more instance of a predictable pattern for Pyrrhus. He says, Pyrrhus was always entertaining one hope after another, and since he made one success but the starting point for a new one, while he was determined to make good each disaster by a fresh undertaking, he allowed neither defeat nor victory to put a limit to his causing trouble for himself and for others. Something to think about there. But as soon as Pyrrhus gets the message from Argos, he breaks camp and immediately sets out north. But that morning, the soothsayer in his camp had given Pyrrhus a troubling report. And every ancient general of any status, by the way, keeps a guy like this, someone in their camp, you know, to conduct divinatory rituals and discern the will of the gods for the day. So this soothsayer reads the omens, he sacrifices an animal, and in the entrails of this sacrificial victim that morning, Pyrrhus's soothsayer was disturbed to find no trace of a liver and this, he said, foretold that Pyrrhus was fated to lose on that day one of his necessary relations. But Pyrrhus was in a hurry to get to Argos before Antigonus, and he forgot all about the omen. And later in the day, Pyrrhus was leading his army through a narrow valley. They suddenly get word that the rear is being attacked at a tight choke point behind them. It's an ambush by the Spartan king Arius with his Spartan and Cretan soldiers. They've allied with Antigonus formally, and they're now taking revenge for Pyrrhus's treatment of their city. And so Pyrrhus sends to fight them off his son, Ptolemy. 
This was his oldest, the one who ruled nobly in his father's place while the king was away in Italy, the one who was just a few days ago, 22 years old, leading a brave charge on the fortifications of Sparta, a precocious young warrior, flower of the Molossian youth, hope of his people. Ptolemy runs off, leading the Gallic mercenaries, and Pyrrhus has the main train of the army stop to wait. Down in the valley, they can hear the familiar sounds, iron clashing, men yelling, that sounds fierce. As Pyrrhus watched in that direction for signs of the results, a lone messenger came into view, sprinting towards the army. It becomes clear that the man is heading right for the king. He looks distressed. Pyrrhus feels his stomach drop. Your son has fallen, my lord, slain by a Cretan lance. As the full shock of the news slowly makes its way through Pyrrhus's consciousness, he struggles to keep his composure. His legs feel weak. He looks up again, and that's when he sees the Spartan's contingent pouring out through the choke point, chasing some of his own men into a clearing. In an instant, all the wavering and confusion and sorrow leaves him. His body has never felt so absolutely certain of what it needs to do. He spurs his horse forward. His field of vision narrows, turns red. Homer once said of Diomedes, the warrior that fought at Troy, that on the day that he battled with the gods themselves, Athena inspired him with inhuman might. She made wearyless fire blaze from his shield and helmet, like the star of the waning summer, who beyond all stars rises, bathed in the ocean stream to glitter in brilliance. And maybe Pyrrhus looked something like that as he crashed with his companions into the Spartan ambushers like an avalanche. He cuts through them like an oar, cuts through the waves. He makes straight for the Spartan unit commander, whose name was Evalcus. He lowers his lance and charges. Evalcus deftly steps aside at the last moment and brings his sword down to strike off Pyrrhus's hand, the one that was holding the reins. And he would have mutilated the king, but Pyrrhus's lance catches the man in the chest an instant before, forcing the Spartan's entire body back, skewering him. Evalcus's feet momentarily lose contact with the ground and his Spartan blade harmlessly cuts Pyrrhus's reins. But the blow dislodges Pyrrhus from his horse. He gets to his footing quickly, though, and as the elite Spartan bodyguards come to the rescue around the body of their fallen commander, Pyrrhus plunges into them like a whirlwind, transported with unworldly fury. Dozens of Sparta's best fighters, none of them surrendered. Pyrrhus spared none. Pyrrhus had never fought like that before. He'd never been so utterly victorious against an enemy. But as the rage left his eyes, the grief set in. This was the most costly of any battle he ever fought. He had lost his firstborn son, perhaps the most precious thing in the world to him. He was now more resolved than ever to defeat Antigonus and take Argos. He arrives in haste at the wide plain in front of the city, but Antigonus is already there. He's camped on some heights overlooking the city. And Pyrrhus sends a message. He invites Antigonus to come down to the plain and fight like a man. Antigonus replies that he was in no particular haste to do battle, but that there were many paths leading to death open if Pyrrhus was so wary of life. Meanwhile, Pyrrhus gets a message from the Argives. The citizenry of Argos has resolved its internal dissension, they say, and they've made a resolution. They would prefer to remain neutral in this conflict and keep Pyrrhus and Antigonus both as friends. Ridiculous. Antigonus, however, accepts, and he agrees to hand over hostages as a pledge of good faith. He promises to leave. Of course, Antigonus would accept. He now controlled Sparta, Corinth, and many other nearby cities. The status quo was in his advantage. 
But if Pyrrhus leaves now, he'll be a laughingstock, a byword, defeated by the Spartans, losing his son, gaining nothing by it. Poor guy, they'd say. No. Pyrrhus sends back to them, Neutrality is fine. He'll be sending some hostages as soon as... And he made up some excuse. He had no intention of really accepting a truce. And meanwhile, he hears back from his allies within the city. Men who secretly still want him to take over, drive out their rivals so that they can take power themselves. They tell him, come at night. We'll open the gate for you. And that's what he did. It was a cloudy night when they executed their plan. It was hard to see anything. That was probably good, right? Pyrrhus takes part of his army, less than half, and quietly makes his way to the gate. It's open, just as promised. Pyrrhus was bringing along with him the troops most calculated to strike fear into the citizenry, cow them into quick submission, his Gaulish mercenaries who were scary and foreign-looking, and of course, his elephants. The Gauls enter first. They're already making their way to the center of the city, to the Agora, the marketplace. That was the rallying point where Pyrrhus was going to announce his gracious amnesty for the friends of Antigonus and so on. He was already thinking about what he was going to say in his speech. But then something unexpected happened. There's a holdup. The elephants can't get through the gate. They have to take their carriages off their backs to fit through. But it's pitch black. And the men are making noise. They're dropping things and stumbling. And suddenly, Pyrrhus notices torches being lit in the city. They hear the alarm. This was bad. The Argives quickly send word to Antigonus. Antigonus sends in his own son through another gate with a defensive force. And the men of the city grab their arms and they sprint up to the fortress. And Pyrrhus, at his gate, charges inside with his cavalry to relieve his troops. They're now hitting heavy resistance at the entrance. And he raises the call to his Gauls in the Agora. And they hear a faint cry in response. It sounds like they're under heavy attack. He rides to relieve them with his horsemen, but it's tough going. Their horses keep tripping over drains in the streets. They're bumping into walls in the dark. But they finally manage to unite at the marketplace. The fighting is intense. And as dawn breaks, however, Pyrrhus looks up and he sees the fortress, the Aspis, overlooking the city. It's filled with defenders. And the enemy is pouring in through the other gate. They're probably surrounding the city too. There's no hope of taking it now and the men know it. The townsfolk are starting to drop heavy roof tiles down at them from the tops of houses. They're in a death trap now. They had to get out. Pyrrhus sends a message to his other son, Helenus. He's outside. Come to the gate where we entered. Guard it. Relieve us. We are trying to escape. But perhaps on that day... Antigonus was being assisted once again by the god Pan, that force of confusion and panic that dazzles your wits in this kind of situation. Because the message that Pyrrhus' son Hellenus received was, Come to the gate. Enter. Relieve us. Hellenus rushes up. He thinks the men from his side that he sees leaving the gate are cowards and deserters. He doesn't realize they were following orders, trying to prevent a disaster, and he drives them back in. And as the beating of the war drums gets louder, a deadly crush forms around the gates. And one of the elephants fell over in the entrance, wounded. It was partway blocking the exit with its huge body. And then as another elephant is making its way out, his rider is struck by an arrow and falls off. And as this poor, terrified animal realizes what's happened, he wheels around in a fury and he charges up against the stream of fugitives trying to find his master. And he finds the rider and he picks up his lifeless body with his trunk and he charges back toward the gate, tramples everyone in his path. 
Kira sees now what's happening. He's powerless to stop it. He can't wind back or tame the chaos. And so in this moment, he does what he knows how to do best. He takes off his royal helmet, gives it to one of his companions, and then he plunges into the enemy, fighting like hell. And it's said that as he was rampaging through the city's defenders, he was wounded by a spear thrust which pierced his breastplate. And he turned around at the man who dealt the blow, and he was about to charge him and run him through. But the man's mother, a poor old widow, was standing on the rooftop of the house that her son had just rushed out of to defend his city. And in her anguish, seeing what's about to happen, she lifts up a heavy tile and hurls it down at Pyrrhus's head. It strikes him at the base of the neck, and the king slowly slumps down from his horse, paralyzed. And he lay there for some time, not recognized in the panic and the chaos. But then some of Antigonus's soldiers see him there. They know who it is. And one of them draws an Illyrian short sword. And Pyrrhus was just then recovering consciousness. And he stares the man straight in the eyes. And the man stumbles. His hand trembles. But then he steals himself and finishes the deed. He cuts off the king's head. Antigonus's son rode up shortly after. His name was Alcyonius. And Alcyonius takes the head from the soldier and he rides off to his father. And Antigonus is sitting outside the gate with some friends. Alcyonius casts the head down on the grass in front of him. Antigonus, however, didn't react like his son expected. He gasps in horror, strikes his son with his staff, and he covers his face and weeps. He later said it was because in that moment he was reminded of the pain in his own family, of the sudden and profound reversal of fortune that his own father Demetrius had experienced at his own end. And perhaps too he remembered Pyrrhus's sister, whom he knew well, or thought about how he once had looked up to Pyrrhus, once regarded him as a family member. Antigonus has Alcyonius look for Pyrrhus's son, Helenus, after the battle. He finds him dazed, ashamed, wearing a tattered cloak. They give him a new outfit and treat him with dignity. Antigonus has the full remains of Pyrrhus gathered together and cremated with honor. Antigonus dealt mildly with the friends and associates of Pyrrhus once he became master of Argos and the remaining units of Pyrrhus's army. And he gave Helenus his father's ashes and sent him back to rule free by the throne of his fathers in the little mountain kingdom of Epirus. And that, friends, is how one of the greatest warrior kings of antiquity ended his days, around 46 years old. And those sounds we just heard are taken from the traditional folk style of Epirot Lamentation, or Dirge. Once again, thanks, Elias. It's called Miroloi in Greek. Many people think that there are some continuities there, actually, with ancient Greek music. So, maybe that's a little bit of what it sounded like in the streets of Ambracia when Hellenus brought the news back to the kingdom, along with his father's remains. Well... When the Tarentines got word of Pyrrhus' death, they decided finally to surrender to the Romans. You know, Pyrrhus' contemporaries, and many generations afterwards, they all seemed to agree that of all the commanders of his day, and there were many impressive ones, Pyrrhus was the greatest. Hannibal, the Carthaginian, a man who emulated Pyrrhus' challenge to the Romans two generations later, he was once asked, who is the greatest commander you know of? And he gave three names. He himself was third. Scipio Africanus, that's the man who defeated him. He was the second. And the first place went to Pyrrhus. Many things draw on a leader's attention. A seemingly infinite number of concerns, infighting among subordinates and family members, 
schemes of rivals, grand ideas for development, civic renewal, beautification programs, patronage, logistics. Pyrrhus made his mark by cultivating an almost maniacal focus on winning now. In doing so, he won for himself long-lasting glory. But I think here, more than most cases, we should perhaps ask, together with Plutarch, what was the cost, and was it worth it? Well, stay tuned for a brief epilogue next week, and also keep a lookout for the life of his Roman counterpart, Gaius Marius, coming soon. We'll do more analysis, as Plutarch did, in the comparison that we do of the two men after telling both of their lives. If you enjoyed this, I hope you'll consider joining our Ancient Life Coach Philosophical Letters email list. Sign up for that on our website, ancientlifecoach.com. And as always, if you feel generous, leave us a good review. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. Until next time, this is Alex Petkus. Alex Petkus.